Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do follow and share it with a friend. And a five-star review will always help in a big way wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really enjoy the episodes, then please do consider becoming a patron of the show. Finally, sign up to our free monthly newsletter, giving you some much-needed updates in the world of adventure. Just use the link in the description. Today's guest is Jenny Wordsworth. Jenny is a dedicated, focused, and tenacious outdoor athlete whose most well-known accomplishment was becoming the eighth woman to solo ski and reach the South Pole after 44 days unassisted. After the first 500 miles, she actually continued to do this and complete this task while having a massively debilitating leg injury. She is a lawyer, professional endurance athlete, keynote speaker, brand ambassador for Atkins on the North Faces Explorers team and a polar ambassador to the UK. Jenny has travelled and raced some of the toughest and longest endurance race events in the world from the Arctic to the desert. And from this, she's built a huge backing to her name, so it's a complete pleasure to have her on the show and I really hope you enjoy the interview with her. We're going to be chatting about running in 60 degrees Celsius heat in the desert, we're going to chat about falling into frozen lakes, but first of all, we're going to dive into her upbringing and dive into Antarctica. So let's get into it. So, hello, Jenny. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm really well, thanks. We'll dive straight into the questions. And yeah. if it's all right, I kind of want to start right back at the beginning. So, you've had such an eclectic upbringing location-wise from exploring rainforests and learning French as a first language. So, for you, how did the adventurer that we know today come about? Um, it's definitely thanks to my parents. Um, like you said, we lived all over the world. Um, I grew up in Borneo. Um, and from there, we moved to Qatar, France, um, a little bit of time in Nigeria when I went to university. Um, I moved schools a lot. I moved homes a lot. And I mean, I had a blast. Um, I guess in some ways it was quite a sheltered upbringing. Um, so there just wasn't really TV. Um, or there was, there was sort of one channel with, you know, two shows with children, that kind of thing. I think it just, that's where the love of the outdoors comes from. Um, the places I got to visit as kids, it's just incredible. And I'm, I feel incredibly grateful for that upbringing. But also being around lots of different types of people. And um, a lot of the countries we lived in had, you know, extreme poverty. And I, I had a blast there. I was just such a happy kid. Um, yeah. I think the one big takeaway for me was, you know, people had so little, but they had so much. Um, my mom talks about this story once where <laughs> I'd had a birthday party. And um, we'd live like right on the edge in these compounds um, and the kind of the village kids would be on the other side. She came home and I'd given away all of my toys uh, over the fence. I think it was like eight. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, just a kid, I just felt really bad. They didn't have all these toys and I had a ridiculous amount of this plastic nonsense and um, just gave it all away. But <laughs> then, yeah, I am really grateful for that upbringing and I'm grateful for being that kind of protective because when we moved back to the UK, um, I had a tough time. I think I was like 11, 11 or 12, so a teenager. Um, but coming back to the UK was a total shock for me. Um, silly things like school uniform, didn't wear one in Borneo, um, it was too hot for that. And suddenly having to, to wear like a full school uniform. 
um, and more kind of serious things. Um, I was, the first two weeks of school, I was bullied for being black. Uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just nonsensical as it sounds. Um, but yeah. What, because of the country you came from, or had you just picked up a really great tan? <laughs> we, yeah, I'm sure we were all tanned with like white blonde hair, but no, it was purely because of the rumors went around of where I'd come from. This is ridiculous. Yeah, my parents talk about this kind of heartbreaking sit down they had to have with me and explain what racism was because I had absolutely no idea. Where I grew up and the people I grew up with in Borneo, I didn't know any different. And so I remember think I remember apparently I came home and said, like, okay, but I'm obviously not black. I can't believe they don't realise that. But even if I was, I couldn't understand why it was a negative. I think it was quite heartbreaking for my parents to explain there's this thing called racism. And after that, if I'm honest, I didn't really like the UK very much. <laughs> it's like there's no there's no rainforest here, there's no orangutan. I work, like I helped out in this orangutan sanctuary in Borneo, and I was just like, wow, this place is the pits. Um, and then silly things like um, you know, when I came back to the UK, I had no idea who Boyzone or Take That were. Oh, you're missing out. <laughs> I'm well caught up. Don't worry. But as like an 11 year old, 12 year old girl, that's massive. And I remember my mum went out and she bought a copy of like Top of the Pops magazine and she sat there at the kitchen table and she was like, this is this, and this is that. And you know, I got picked on at school for that as well, not knowing who the bands were. Um, I didn't know anything about branded clothing. I didn't know that it mattered to have like an Adidas jumper or anything like that. So, and at the time when you're a teenager, that's, you know, that's awful. You just want to fit in. But now that I'm older, I... I just can't tell you how great I am that I had that that kind of upbringing and, and parents parents that I have. But yeah, it's not fun as a teenager. <laughs> Massively shaped who I am today. And then, um, I mean, it must have done. Um, I love being outdoors. I love going on expeditions. Yeah, so obviously played a big part. Yeah, hugely. Yeah, just just staying outdoors is a... Uh... Is quite key anyway. I mean, I encourage most people to. I'm a gamer, and, and, and even for me, I'd say put down the put down the controller sometimes <laughs> and just get outdoors. <laughs> so to have to have an almost solely outdoors only upbringing is incredible. Yeah, you're right. Incredibly grateful. So as we record this, it's been a bit of an odd year with the pandemic, uh, and I think potentially for you as well. And you kind of touched upon it um, with your upbringing just now, saying how you're jumping out from place to place um you've gone from reaching the south pole to surgery on your leg to the realities of lockdown back to back i was wondering how have you got on with this huge and sudden contrast it's funny a lot of people um got in touch with me in lockdown i'm like god you must be really struggling and i was like no this is lovely and i think what i loved about it and obviously context is you know is lovely i still kept my job and i didn't get sick and no one as close to me got sick but it's that time like you have no control and you also don't know when the finish line is coming. We still don't know. Um, and if you kind of give into that, I, I absolutely loved lockdown. I loved it. There's no pressure to go anywhere, do anything. Just, just like an expedition, you've got no control of the elements. You don't always know when the expedition is going to come to an end because of that. Um, I mean, actually at the time in lockdown um, with some other female polar explorers, and there's not many of us <laughs> in the world. Um, we're all really close. There's about, I don't know, six or seven of us and states and everywhere. And we came together and wrote an article about it. Um, kind of isolation is the adventure. Yeah, I did. I did really enjoy it more than maybe <laughs> I should have done. Um, and it's always a time to pause and reflect. You, it's just like an expedition. You just have that time to think and you become so grateful for absolutely everything. 
Um, and I felt the same in, in lockdown. Um, and my other half was, you know, he worked at the Nightingale throughout. Um, so I didn't really see him that much. And um, it was just me and the dog. And it was it was kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a nice segue that you mentioned the, the article you did, because I, I had a read of it and I liked that. <laughs> You said that you curated the chance to embrace the gifts, the gifts of isolation to all. That's what lockdown's done for everyone. Yeah, um, context again for the people who you know haven't lost a job and become really unwell and that kind of thing. But yeah, I, yeah for me, I often say that the expeditions I've created for myself to happen in my life, the probably hands down the biggest gift I've ever made for myself. Yeah, I mean, I've. My episode one on this show was about my first sort of travel bug trip, having a road trip to Switzerland, and I did that completely on my own. And I, I since then, I've completely advocated for people to do a trip on their own. So I, I was, I was thinking really narrowing, narrowing, narrowing in, if I can say it properly, um, on what you touched upon just then. What benefits do you think it can have on men's health and headspace? Oh, it's the only time to really hit pause. And it's a lot of thinking time. It's just you and your thoughts. And there's so many things. I don't think you have time or the headspace to process in your day-to-day -day busy life. That when you're on, it doesn't have to be a major ridiculous expedition to Antarctica. It could be anything. Um, you've actually got time to work through all of those things. And I think it just makes you feel better. And for me, I didn't realize it had a name <laughs> at first. But when I'm on an expedition and doing like, you know, or a, a really long ultra running race, I automatically kind of go into this flow state and like 12 hours can go by and I haven't, I haven't got a clue. And I've, people are like, don't you get bored? Don't you need music? Don't you need a podcast? I'm like, no, I just, I don't know what's going on. I'm just very, very chilled. And sure, I'm thinking about lots of things. Um, and I'd always noticed that the days that kind of went a bit wrong or felt a bit crap were the ones where I hadn't been able to get into that flow state. And normally it would be something was bugging me, something was wrong. I hadn't thought through something, you know, um, and... Yeah, it really was disruptive of the day, and 12 hours felt like 24 hours. Well, you yeah. said that for your uh, your expedition in the South Pole. Like you, you, I think you said that you only had like you only listened to one podcast, and the rest of the time you just uh, like really any. Kept, kept the earphones out. Yeah, um, I had one audiobook um, that I'd been saving for. Well, I've listened to it. I read it several times. I never listened to it, um, and that was Shackleton's Diaries. And listening to that whilst being in Antarctica was just the most surreal thing ever. But no, I, just, I never, I never really need it. Um, I had a couple of playlists, you know, I've got some kind of favorite songs I want to put on. And actually the only time I'd really put them on was in the weather was kind of absolutely awful. Um, and I had a friend as well, who put together a playlist of music and then um, about 20 of my friends recorded audio messages and they were hidden in the songs. Um, and that was really fun on some like, you know, dark days at the end. Yeah. To kind of hear your friends' voices and, and figure out. But no, on the whole, um, I just didn't need that. And I think a lot of that comes back to the training. Um, ever since I've done any kind of sport, um, swimming was where I started. Obviously, you don't listen to, to music while you're swimming, some people do. But I just never used music or any kind of external stimulus to kind of make sure I hit, you know, those sprint speeds or that race time. Because my fear was that in training, if you rely on that to get you through podcast and audiobook music, what happens on race day or what happens on the expedition when it doesn't work? And that happens all the time. I sometimes thought that, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit worrying because, you know, you, everyone who runs will know this. Like, you run faster when you're listening to a fast song. So if that fast song's not there, then what happens? Um, and so 
it's a really hard discipline to keep because when you're training and it's hard, you want to make things easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had some amazing coaches um, for my Antarctica expeditions um, and a guy called Mike McCastle, American guy, incredible coach and athlete. And um, 70% of my sessions had no external stimulus at all. And so I'll give you an example of one of them. It would be like 14 hours on a treadmill, maximum incline, um, with kettlebells um, and a belt hanging off the back with like 80 kilos. And I'd just be staring at a white wall. And that was it. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> that, that, like times like that, you're like, I would love to be able to watch Netflix right now. This is a great opportunity to catch up on some TV. Yeah. But it was, it was important for me. And then once I say I'm going to do it, you know, that's, I'll do it. That's the session I'm doing. But yeah. But that's a good way to do it. I mean, it's, people always say uh, I mean factually it's not but the people always say the brain's a muscle and you've got to train it and if you're going to train it to watch Netflix then then you best hope you've got to find a way of like having a tv in front of you while you're hiking some trekking across the south pole you know (laughs) so again you've kind of helped me out nicely with another segue there to training so when you're not inside um doing that the you know the incline work have you found any place in the UK that you really enjoy training Fitting in training for the kind of things that I do um, with a full-time job in London means I don't usually venture that far, I'm honest, mm. um, just for convenience and fitting it in with work. Uh, Everything is just so far away from London as well, isn't it? You know, like... <laughs> it's why I live here, but yeah, I'm in London. Um, so yeah, like um, about a mile from me, there's um, Hampstead Heath, um, a big park in North London, and I pretty much live on the Heath. Um, I love the Heath and so I, I did a lot of training on there with my kind of big tires and the harness um, I go very early in the morning or kind of middle of the night just to avoid lots of people going what are you doing aren't you tired and so, yeah I was, was going to ask comes. yeah well, I made a rule actually if if, um, if children stopped to ask what I was doing I would always stop and explain of course yeah with adults I'd be like this is just what I do for exercise <laughs> just for <laughs> because Jason Fox um, has a podcast and on his first ever I think it was his first ever episode he interviewed a guy who he got to the North Pole with his team of two other two other women I think and and he said in his community it was just unheard of 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 someone doing that he said he was so uh, self-conscious of training for it he was pulling a tire at uh, you know like 1am in the morning uh, 2am and and he said he he came across some like sort of teenage boys and he was saying how oh, there's nothing they're gonna do but it's just intimidating and he even turned around and yeah, sort of pulled yeah. it back of the way but hide your tire yeah I mean I looked incredibly dodgy because I would also train <laughs> enormous weighted vest on um, and they're quite expensive so I bought this like really cheap one from Argos and it just looks awful and it looks like a suicide bomber vest tubes going all down the front so I then wear an even bigger coat to hide that. Oh god. <laughs> it's like bizarre. Favourite places to train in the UK? Um you'll find me on the west coast of Scotland, the islands. That's mm. one of my favourite places on planet Earth, probably just after Antarctica. Um I go there any chance I get. Um It's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, it's just amazing. And most people don't bother going up there, they assume the weather's gonna be awful and I've just never had bad weather when I've been up there. Um I love that you can wild camp and go anywhere. Um, you've got the sea, the surfing's amazing, kite surfing's really good. Um, 
And obviously, yeah, Sky, the Coolin Ridge. I just I love all those places so much. So you don't even have to go that far. But yeah, it's a bit tricky to fit that into a quick weekend. Um, but yeah, in terms of actual, that's kind of fun stuff. In terms of actual training, it's nearly all in London. Um, or a couple of times I'd make it out to the Peak District. That's kind of the nearest nearest place. Yeah, yeah. in the gym, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Talk a moment about uh, your trip as well. So you said that you were on track for the speed record until the injury hit on the way to the South Pole. And I often ask people on the show how they deal with obstacles. But in this case, tell us what was going through your head and going through your thoughts as everything unraveled as it did. Yeah, and it really did unravel. (laughs) (laughs) Which to me, honestly, is the draw of things like this, because you can have a very, you know, this is what I want to happen. But it's Antarctica. Um, you know one of the wildest places on earth most remote places on earth and um, I think I love knowing that everything can be going absolutely fantastic and then bam suddenly it's going horribly wrong Um, and that's definitely the draw for me I'm not interested in something that's definitely going to go right every time Um, but yeah I was flying for the first 500 miles I was ahead of the world record pace I felt incredible and it was just so so good um, just to explain, this is my second attempt to break the women's speed record. Um, the year before, um, I'd gone out there and it was like the worst weather in 50 years. The weather was unbelievable. There was like up my mid-thigh. Um, and believe it or not, there's, you know, there's no precipitation in Antarctica. It's very low in mind. So there's not really much snow at all. Um, so everything's designed to kind of glide on this kind of icy, slightly snowy surface. Um, and suddenly I'm in snow up to, to thigh deep and everything's sinking. And it's it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, anyway, it didn't matter because on day 20, I got peritonitis, um, quite a serious bowel infection, and was medivaced. Um, was not happy about being medivaced. And uh, that was it. Like the dream just came to this end. Flew back to the UK, was in hospital for a couple of nights, recovered really quickly, um, which made me feel even more like a fraud because I didn't really feel that sick. And then having to mm. fit so much press coverage at that time and having to face kind of everyone with a no I didn't make it it was like oh and so I knew I was going back um and so to go back and just to feel like I was flying was like you know this is it this is the culmination of everything going you know belly up last year getting sick here I am like and I felt stronger I felt faster and the weather was exactly as it's supposed to be in Antarctica a couple bad storms but you know the usual um, and it felt amazing. And then suddenly <laughs> um, I had this condition on my leg. It's called polar thigh. Um, I could talk about an hour just about polar thigh. It's <laughs> I'll not, do a separate not... podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you've got a lot of experience to share about it, I think. Green <laughs> of polar thigh. <laughs> um, it's not, very briefly, I don't want to bore people, but it's not that well understood a condition. Um, but the great thing about how severe my case was was it's the first time they've been able to operate on it because it was so bad. So it's the first time anyone's been able to have a look kind of under the hood. And actually the pathology of the injury underneath doesn't match up um, with what we think causes it from the kind of the outside, if that makes sense. And so it's been really helpful um, and it'll help people who come after me um, with how you kind of prevent getting it. Um, but for example, the first year I was in Antarctica, you know, I got I got barely any of it, tiniest patch of it on my leg. And this year was really bad. So it's quite hard to explain, but there's some photos, very graphic photos of it on my Instagram, if anyone wants to have a look. Um, that kind of helped you really I'll understand. I'll leave it in the, um, the show notes, because yeah. 
quite awful. Because <laughs> you can, because uh, what I'll do is on on the blog that accompanies this for anyone listening, you can scroll down while listening. I'll put the post on there. You have to scroll to see the manky bits. So um, so it's not going to shock you, but you'll know you'll know when you get there, right? <laughs> quite bad um and yeah. <laughs> I have lots of these little also yeah they are ulcers on my inner left leg some really minor ones on the right and a tiny one on my arm and I just thought they weren't a big deal this is polythi um but they started getting worse and worse and worse um and I had a tiny little bit of a piece of dressing uh, it's called granuflex it's amazing for expeditions you literally cut out exactly what you need and slap it on whatever's injured or cut open and it will not come off until you get home and you're in a you know an hour long hot shower and it'll kind of melt off it's amazing stuff um and i had a very tiny piece of it because i was going for the record just to clarify everything i need for those 700 miles 44 days is in a sled behind me all the food the tent everything um so i'm not you know i don't have this enormous first aid uh kit um and yeah I was cutting out what I needed for each little ulcer as it broke up so it looked like this awful patchwork quilt of um of dressings and I was getting to a point where I was like I'm I can't have any more ulcers I have no more granuflex um I had like the size of like a, a pound coin left that was it and um in a really bad storm I had a really benign fall uh you always fall over in storms because you can't see where you're going and uh, there's lots of sastrugi, which is kind of these like big frozen waves, if you imagine, of ice. Um, and you're going through them. Normally you'd navigate slightly around them, but in a storm, you just kind of go through them. And um, I fell over. So I landed on my back. I heard and felt the whole leg split open. And what happened was all the ulcers just joined up. Um, and that's what you can see in the photo is one big mess. <laughs> Um, but the granuflex didn't come off, um, but I could tell the injury got a lot just from the noise that it made. Um, obviously didn't look at it and skiing in the middle of a storm. Um, and that night I had a little investigative look and thought, oh dear. <laughs> um, but I think that's why the context of the first expedition is so important. There was just nothing on planet Earth that was going to stop me from getting to the pole. And the la- I think it was roughly the last 200 miles were honestly the worst experience of my life um trying to put the tent up and down in good weather and bad weather when you need to be really nimble on your feet you've got to be fast there's a very speedy technique to getting the tent up especially in windy conditions you're not on your knees crawling um and that's what I was doing any any minor movement on the thigh was agony um and then of course I'm skiing still for 16 hours a day or whatever um, and so for the first hour I'd be in agony and then it would just kind of go numb and a bit quiet and I had, did have some strong painkillers, um, not very many, they were reserved in case I fell into a crevasse or broke a bone so I could get rescued, so tramadol, that kind of thing and suddenly I was taking, you know, the, the couple of tramadol I have just to fall asleep um, and I remember crying my eyes out when I realised um, I had no codeine left or the oh, <laughs> damn. It sounds so desperate, but I remember actually one of the pills broke open. I had them in little kind of bags and I was like licking the inside of the bag. Um, it's like a movie. <laughs> yeah. And the reason was like I knew I had to prioritise sleep. If I don't get the sleep in, um, there's no way I'm going to be able to carry on skiing this kind of mileage every day and make it. Um, but I cannot take painkillers in the day. It's a solo expedition. You have to keep safe. And skiing on tramadol <laughs> around Antarctica is definitely not safe. So, um, yeah, I chose to kind of kind of sleep. But it was it's the worst sleep I've ever had. 
Um, because what was happening in the nighttime when I was back in a warm tent was the area was trying to heal. So blood flow was going to the area. Um, and it was just an intense, intense pain. I kept messaging my dad as the expedition manager and I kept texting him on this special device thing back home being like, I want the blood to stop flowing there. Like, stop trying to heal. Just die, okay? <laughs> I don't want to feel this anymore. Um, and hand on heart, I still, I still haven't fully processed how I did it. Um, I know that I have mental strength, resilience. Uh, that's how you run 100 miles across the desert, that kind of thing. Mm. I had no idea that I could take it to this level. And I'm not entirely sure it's the best thing, but it's nice to know that it's there. Definitely something worth keeping an eye on because it's, you know, it's not, it's not great to, to always push through difficult things to that extreme. Um, but I would say it's probably a real one-off and that's because it just meant so much to me. And there was no way I wasn't making the pull. Just absolutely no chance. And they tried to medivac me twice. The doctors, I had to speak to them in the evening on the satellite phone every couple of days. And then when the leg got really bad, you know, they wanted to come and get me. And it was like the same doctor from last year. Uh, and he's like, you know, like, I don't have a fever. I'm not sick. Um, mm. Very sterile environment, Antarctica, obviously. So there's no way I'm being pulled. I'm not unwell. I'm just in a, you know, like an insane amount of pain. And then as that went wrong, everything went wrong. Like my stove blew up, um, I damaged an eye. Like it's just like everything was just like, Ugh. and it was just like, just get there, woman. That is just all you have to do. And yeah, I will never, ever forget being able to see the Polar Scientific Station and the American base, which you can see from quite far out. I think about 16 hours out of skiing. It looked like an alien spaceship. And I was like, and I did not stop till I got there. Not for a pee, not for anything. Just went and went and went. Yeah, there's no way. Uh, there's no way I was stopping. I think I arrived at like three in the morning. Um, and there's a tiny little tent at the South Pole for people who kind of go there as a tourist. They might fly in to see the South Pole and leave again for people like me. And I just opened the door, collapsed. They weren't expecting me, which is quite funny. Because <laughs> they supposed to know I was coming. And the guy... <laughs> Um, the guy who runs it, Dev, uh, he's a good friend, um, knew him before. He's like, Jen? And I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and just It was fascinating. My legs just gave way. Um, I'd been skiing for, you know, 18 hours or whatever, and I suddenly just collapsed. And he gave me a Did beer. Did your head just feel like you had you finally permission to stop, do you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I was at the South Pole for about four days, maybe three days, waiting for good weather so we could fly back to the main base camp on the coastline um about a four or five hour flight away and um there was a doctor at the south pole which normally there isn't um but he was doing something else and he stayed at the pole because he knew i'd be there in a day or two and he wanted to see my leg and he he just kept me on beer and tramadol that was my diet days and uh, I understand why now. He just had to keep me comfortable. So we couldn't do anything with the leg at the South Pole. There's no shower there. You couldn't wash the, the granuflex off. And yeah, went from there. Uh, <laughs> went home. <laughs> that's it. That's, that is such incredible resilience. Yeah, I, I, I get why people think it is. And I, I do agree. But it's also like temper that with you've got to you've got to protect your body as well sometimes like you know I've done I did a big race in China that I loved and turns out I ran on a broken foot and I had no idea until I stopped and my foot was in agony and um, so that's all right I think <laughs> but um, 
and I've always been able to train through injuries and when I was younger it was this awful cycle of getting injured and then rehabbing it not being able to do you know ABC race being really annoyed about it being really good at rehab behaving and then going round and round and round again because I can push through the pain I just park it somewhere else in my head Mm. but when I was in hospital after the surgeries on this leg um, they they brought in a sports psychologist which was just amazing of the surgeon to realize that I needed that because at the time I thought what and I okay yeah sure I'll, I'll have a chat with her and it's the best thing I've ever done I only saw it twice and um, but there was it was absolutely a trauma there Um so for the first kind of two weeks after getting back I'd wake up in the middle of the night and like the hospital ward I was in turned into a huge storm in Antarctica and it would change every night but there'd be someone or something saying you can't go to the South Pole and it was literally just behind them oh, they'd be like no not horrible yeah and it was things like it's closed come back next month <laughs> um you've gone the wrong way you're at the North Pole or like just nonsense things and the psychologist was like this is your brain your brain hasn't caught up with the fact that it's done. You made it and you're safe. Mm. It's fine. You're still freaking out. And you are, she was like, you were so hell bent on getting there. You would have pushed through absolutely everything. Um, and then there was, there was a little bit of um, PTSD with um, the first time I took a shower uh, with my leg, uh, which is back at the main base camp. Um, I had a bottle of whiskey in my hand from the doctor. Um, and they were putting like all these, um, painkillers direct to my mouth through the shower curtain um I had to peel off those bits of granny flex um holding onto the sides and there was a lovely girl there Lucy helping me get undressed and she said I was howling like a injured animal (laughs) and and that was on so many painkillers so there was you know definitely um some things to deal with afterwards but you know is minor like within a month the brain side of it, it all gone back to normal but the showers still freaked me out for like a month or two I did not enjoy being in them um, and again the psychologist with that was like that's your brain immediately going thinking you're back there in that shower and you know yeah, stress yeah. response yeah yeah and um, it was amazing it's really fortunate he is a plastic surgeon and otherwise he would have done this operation um but uh, he doesn't want to operate on his own wife so <laughs> so his colleague did the surgery um, and I remember they collected me. I landed at Heathrow after uh, being high as a kite on the plane because the doctor had given me so many painkillers to get me through. <laughs> and actually, jumping back, there's loads of videos from me at the South Pole because um, there was like two or three other people there and we were all kind of huddled together waiting to get the flight out. And there's videos of me just like laughing telling everyone I'm high, I've never been high in my life, this is crazy, and then getting really sad and being like, I don't want to be high anymore, I don't want any more beer, I'm fed up with this. Yeah, I just have memory of, of nothing but having fun, it was just really weird. But um, yeah, so I landed in the UK, Matt, my husband, met me at Heathrow, and he was like, okay, we're going straight to the Royal Free. And I was like, what, no, I need to go home, like, I need to see the dog, I haven't seen the house in so long. And I, that was that was the moment where Matt knew because he'd been dealing with the doctors in Antarctica on my way home. And I had no idea it was having surgery. I was like, I probably need to go to A&E to have this cleaned out. Uh, but there's not, you know, this will just heal. It did not think it was that bad. I hadn't seen it at that point. And um, when I took the granuflex off in the shower, I didn't want to look at it. Oh, I was uh-huh. completely out of it anyway. And they just bandaged it up in these really big comfortable bandages for me to fly home uh, comfortably um and so I hadn't really looked at it and um 
And it's like, God, Matt, you're being such a drama queen. Like, I don't need to go to hospital. And I got to hospital and the entire team, who I all knew, been out with them like Christmas drinks and whatever, they're all waiting for me, um, which never happens. I'm like, you're ready. And um, while I was waiting to be called in, I ate a packet of crisps and a chocolate bar because I was starving and I just got back to the land of food. <laughs> and I'd lost a lot of weight. <laughs> they came to get me and they were all crowded around. Jen, amazing, you're so amazing. You do that. Looking at my leg, I still didn't want to look at it. And uh, Mr. Willard, the consultant who I love, was like, okay, Jen, uh, we're going we're gonna to pop to surgery now. Like, you know, keeping it nice and calm. And um, I was like, oh, we can't. And uh, they all thought I'd been nil by mouth the whole time. I think I was supposed to be. And I was like, I've just eaten packet crisps and a chocolate bar. Yeah, because you can't <laughs> go under, can you? Yeah. So anyway, did surgery next morning. Um, I needed one operation to kind of clean it out and to clean out all the dead bits. You'll see in the photos, there's kind of a black, two black areas that had to come out. And then once they cleaned it all out, it kind of looked like uh, the inside of a pomegranate is the best way to describe it. And um, I woke up uh, and was like, yeah, I'm going home tonight. And they were like, no, we need to do another operation. Um, we need to give you a skin graft. And so I had that um, and then went home to recover. Damn. Yeah. So, so I like that story. <laughs> yeah. But, like, but what an incredible story, though. And bearing in mind that you're you're OK, it's it's I feel it's totally fine to say the whole thing is is epic and and um, what a story as well and to top it off as well from from flying in like well ahead of the record to then pushing through that disgusting injury to then still get to the south pole and then you've had surgery and thankfully like, everything's gone well is that's an, an incredible story to tell you know, <laughs> yeah. at, at the very least i did the surgeon um did say to me in the end he was like i really hope you wear these scars with pride and i really do i mean i keep thinking about being a granny and being able to tell my kids and they just my grandkids they just won't believe it it's quite a look at this and it's it's a pretty big scar but i'm used to it now i think the the big thing for me now is when other people see it they are pretty horrified if i'm honest which is oh, a really reaction. yeah it just it looks so bad and um, it looks like a you know an awful burn or something I think it's a good way to detect which one of your which of your friends are quite scientific and which ones are a bit more emotional. Like obviously you can have both, but which ones are swinging on each end of the scale? Because like I'm sure you get some people who go, oh wow, look at that. Yeah. And you get some people who go, oh no. no. Yeah. I've got a lot of friends and doctors, and they're mostly like, oh wow, what happened here? Did you know? Why did they cut this? Did you do that? And then the rest of my friends are like, oh my god, your leg. <laughs> uh, but no, my the first thing I said when I woke up in recovery was like does it still function as I mean if they'd have to you know cut out a chunk of muscle or something didn't work I'd have been absolutely gutted um, and that would have been really hard to get over because I did that to myself um, but when they were like it's it's very it's superficial it's very superficial but you're fine it was like ah dreamy <laughs> ideal <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah so uh, moving uh, kind of just kind of rounding off but also finding out your thoughts um, I saw on your Twitter that you shared um, President Obama uh, talking about call out culture and how it's not a way of effectively changing anything uh, for, for those who don't know call out culture is essentially um, calling someone out and then sitting back and going I'm an activist <laughs> and, um, and this it's not uh, the case yeah yeah um, so what's your opinion on backing yourself and putting action to your words not just um, you know, not just from expeditions, but the life itself as well. Oh, it's very personal, I think. Uh, for me, I don't have a problem backing up my bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, like Eddie Hall says, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because if I decide I'm doing something, then I'm doing it. Um, I come up with a plan, how I'm going to fit this in, is this feasible? And then I execute. Um, there's not a halfway house for me. So if I say I'm going to do something, that means I'm doing it. And actually, for me, if, if anything kind of has fallen apart or hasn't been completed, I clearly didn't want it badly enough. So the root of it is always like, what is your why for doing this? And if you really, really want to do it, then I firmly believe that you will. I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but I try, I don't really think that about other people. So if someone says to me, I'm going to do this, and they don't, I don't think, well, I don't really want it. It only applies to me and what I'm doing. <laughs> but that that's honestly what I think. Um, if I didn't, if I didn't, you know, do the 12 hour session on the treadmill right after work and I was knackered, well, do you really want this or do you not? And that's kind of what I do with everything. Um, it helps you grow as a character, I guess. Yeah. Um, or just organized. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I'm really not that organized. It's interesting. People assume I must be like a type A, super organized person. Um, and I'm not. I'm very, very fortunate and grateful to have the coaches that I do. Mm. Um, and so for example for me training for an expedition or a race or whatever if that training is in my diary it does not get missed it happens and I'm sure I could be flexible you know friends want to go out and do something fine but I'll be up at 5am to do it instead of doing it that evening when I was going to go out it doesn't it doesn't not get done um and I have to do that because it makes you that's how you prepare um it's always a case yeah. for me of like you know what can I control and what can I not things I can't control <laughs> like horizontal about can't do anything about the weather, can't do anything about X, Y, Z. But the things I do have control over, well, you damn sure I'm taking that box. Yeah. Uh, and then what will be, what will be, you know? Yeah, that's a fantastic approach to have. I was reading about your uh, time doing the Arctic Ultra 250. Yeah. So I was thinking, so from your first Arctic race to falling through ice, what <laughs> lessons did you learn while doing this? <laughs> Uh, the Arctic one was a funny one because um, at that point in my ultra running career, um, I'd had two years out as a pro and um, I, everything I'd done had been running in the heat. <laughs> and I loved running in the heat and I hated being cold. Um, so I still, I don't really know why I did that race. I thought it looked beautiful. I did it with my best friend Hazel. Um, I had really bad Raynaud's in my hands back then. So I, I, I don't really know why I did it, but it was absolutely stunning. I'd recommend that race to anyone. Mm. But yeah, I actually fell in the lake in that race. Mm. Um, and I remember actually the medic, uh, they pulled me out and I just froze immediately. And they had me in this little tent. And I heard one of them say, like, they were placing bets at the fact that, you know, I might recover, but there's no way I was finishing the race. I had, like, frost nip on the back of my heels. I was totally out of it. They showed me a video later of me, and I was just talking nonsense from the cold. And... <laughs> But I remember hearing she's not going to make it. And I was like, well, yes, I am. And so well, off I went and I completed it. Um, yeah, that, that was such an incredible race. I think it's called the Arctic, the Arctic Ultra 250. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, God, everyone should do that race. Absolutely beautiful. It's in Sweden. I remember running along this um, actually frozen lake. They didn't fall through this one. And uh, I could hear this, like, animal noise behind me. And I looked over to my left and um, there was a moose running along the frozen lake at the same time. And it was just like, wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What That's I did. Incredible. Yeah. It was, it was just amazing. But the lesson for me from that race, it was like, wait a minute, I completely blocked off in my mind doing things in the cold because I don't like being cold and I've got really bad rain in my hands. 
for whatever reason, I signed up to do this one, looked fun, and doing it with a friend. And I wasn't really racing it seriously because I was doing it with a friend. It was like, this is just mm. a thing. It's, it's like a, a holiday. Like, and afterwards, it was like, well, what else am I kind of holding myself you know, back from because I don't think I can do it? Um, so it was quite interesting from that perspective. Uh, and yeah, a couple of years later, I was in Antarctica. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's so it's interesting to see that you you push yourself to get into the Arctic like that. And on this show, we usually invite people on to chat about, you know, their itineraries, um, you know, something they've done and just have a chat through. And it w- it's hard to pick another one, but I wanted to go kind of the opposite to the Arctic Ultra 250. So I was just wondering briefly, how was the Iran Silk Road ultramarathon for you? Oh, other than hot, <laughs> <laughs> the stuff in my happy place. It was hot, but it was it was too hot. I am so grateful I got to go to Iran. Um, I'm not sure I would go now. And at the time, I got a second British passport, um, just so I could separate. I did a lot of racing in the US. I had a US athletes visa, and it. I was told it'd be hell if you kind of travel to Iran on that passport. So I had two passports, and I. I just, Iran is just beautiful. Um, but that specific race, I don't encourage anyone to do. <laughs> They've asked me to plug it for years now. Um, and I've said, no, I don't think it's a safe race. I, I'm sure now it is. They've moved um, when the race takes place. It's like a cooler time of the year. And we were the first kind of cohort of elite runners. They kind of invited out to go and do it. Um, and it was also really important for me to go. It was the, the first um, event, which they campaigned heavily for. Uh, first event in 38 years where the government had allowed Iranian women to race alongside men. So it was mega. Yeah, super important. Yeah, definitely wanted to be a part of that. And so I, um, we really, really struggled to find any Iranian woman who would take part even once we could show them the paperwork that said they were legally allowed to. They still feared a backlash, which I quite understand. And we were hoping to put together a team of like four women um, in Iran and do it together. Um, and I would coach them. And it was just so tricky. But there's one amazing woman who was like, screw it, I'm doing it. Uh, Masa Tarabi, who now is like very well known over there. She started up like a woman's cycling club, mountaineering club. She's just, oh, wow. yeah, she's amazing. It gives me goosebumps. I absolutely love that woman. You know, we had about six weeks before the race for me to train her for this 250K. And she was never going to run it. And that wasn't the point. It was just for her to complete it. So she, you know, walked and jogged in bits and, um oh love that woman but yeah the race itself uh it was 66 degrees celsius on the hottest day uh through the dash desert and that is too hot for any human being to be running um i take a siesta or did you just keep powering through with with just with a hat on yeah i just kept going um the thing that made this the race really unsafe um was first time he'd done the event it was italian race organizers um it's the first time he'd worked with kind of local iranians with language problems and i think they used the iranian red cross to kind of set up the aid stations for the water um and when you do these big events you get like a little kind of map and you know roughly when a water station is going to be there every 10k every 12k and you really need to know that in a hot environment because you're planning your water intake till you get any pacing on your watch and so um I was leading and I'd get to where the water station was meant to be and there's nothing there. And I'd be like, oh my God, like I really need water. And I'd go another 5K and it would be there. And they'd explain with like massive smiles that where they'd moved the tent to was a much prettier spot so that tourists like me could get a better view and see more beautiful Iran. And it was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's so kind of you, but I really need the water in that really not very ugly spot for my kid back. Um, so it was things like that. That's so cute, but oblivious to what you're going through. Yeah, like I'm dying, I need water. I thought you worked for the Red Cross. <laughs> um, and that, that happened throughout the race, um, and they kind of resolved it, you know, as they went. But it was there's just things like that happened all the time. Um, and at one point, I left the... Like the race kind of restarts every morning if you like you camp overnight and I left with an enormous block of ice tucked into my hat um, and that was the only way I was going to make it through but yeah <laughs> I was an insane race um, I remember the last night running through a bit of proper desert and being told you'll get to somewhere called Snake Valley or something and when you kind of look off to the side it'd be pitch black you'll see all these little snake eyes looking back at you and I was just like, oh, God, I'm dreading that. And the race organizer was like, just run straight through. Don't look at it. Don't worry about it. And at this point, I'm like, anything you tell me not to worry about, <laughs> I kind of worry about it because I'm not sure about this organization. Um, ha, 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 not funny. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got to that. I got a little bit lost. Um, I got a bit teary um, uh, just before I left for that race. Um, I told my grand, I went to see my granddad in the hospital. That was probably going to be it for him. I was very, very close to him. And I was terrified that he'd actually died while I was racing, but no one was going to tell me. They said, well, wait till you get home. I got home and he was fine. So, but oh, I had moments in the race when you're kind of by yourself and there's these beautiful stars in the middle of the desert and you just can't help but think of my granddad, my papa. I was a bit teary. And then all of a sudden, I'm running along with my head torch on um, and something hits me in the forehead. <laughs> I was like, holy, what the hell is that? And I wiped my forehead and there's blood there. And I was like, what? And I looked down on the floor is an, an injured bat. Oh, no. I don't know if he was injured before he hit into me, which is why he hit into me, or if I injured him. But anyway, or made it worse. And like, little things lying on its back, flapping its wings. And I was like, oh, my God, I've killed a bat. What's happening now? Also terrified of the bat. Um, and as I'm looking down at the bat on the floor, like wondering, what do I do? Do I like move it off? The, I don't know what to do with this bat. It's like clearly dying. I look down and it's in the desert. So you're running with sand gaiters on so you don't get sand in your shoes. And these white uh, gaiters of your trainers. And I look and there's a sand colored scorpion crawling up my gaiters. <laughs> oh. And I was just like, fuck this. <laughs> get me out of here. My head, I can see all these little eyes looking at me, which are all snakes apparently. And I just bombed it. And there was like 8k left to go, and that was the long stage. So, the long stage is like 100k or something. So, you're, you're dead beat at that point. It's the middle of the night, I think it was like three, four in the morning. And I just absolutely bombed it. I arrived at the end of the race, it was the first one there. Everyone's like, You're all right, they're whispering because like you know, volunteers and stuff are sleeping. I was like, Oh, this bloody. <laughs> and the, the race director was like, What happened near the end? Like, you're split because I've got a tracker on me. It was, you just went like the fastest split you've done all day. And I was like, ah, it's <laughs> <laughs> just attacking me. Let me go to bed. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the experience for that one was absolutely um, uh, Massa and her, you know, taking part in that race and also being able to visit Iran. But hands on heart, there's no other reason I probably would have gone to Iran. And so, one of the great things that when you get invited to do these races is, um, for me, it's always about going to places and countries that I've never been to before. And it's such a different way to experience them. Um, for me, I did the, the Ultra Trail Gobi. It's like 400k through parts of the Gobi Desert. 
um, in an area in China that's normally closed off to tourists. And like, you're not going to say no to that. Like it was no. just incredible. And you get to, it's those moments to me standing in a desert completely alone in the middle of the night and the stars and think it's just like, God, this is incredible. And to me, that's honestly a huge chunk of what life is about. So yeah, it was a great race. <laughs> Perfect. And I was thinking as well, so you've climbed Denali, Kilimanjaro, Mount Vincent, right? Yes. Perfect. Do you have plans to complete the Seven Summits at some point? Uh, great question. The um, I think I know too many people who died on Everest um, to want to do it. Um, I've got friends who died on Everest and they're like, come on, Jen, we'll take you up. And I think the problem I've most got with Everest is there's so many more amazing things to climb next mm. door. Uh, that aren't anywhere near as busy, but it is interesting. Everyone says to me, oh, you do mountaineering, but have you climbed Everest? And you go, no, and they go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> like, things, yeah, but it's just, it's the mountain, right? Um, yeah, I think the the main issue with me with Everest is a safety one from the point of view that really anyone can get up there these days, and that causes problems higher up on the ropes where maybe less inexperienced people or people who aren't as used to the altitude, haven't trained as you might want them to, um, it's very difficult to get around them. So if they're going mm. slow, you're going slow, you're going to get cold. And a lot of that is out of your control. You have to take really kind of unsafe measures to get around them. Um, and I'm just not sure I'm willing to take that on. But um, I was supposed to be in Nepal this April um, to climb Labuchi, which is next door to Everest. It's been moved to basically 2020. It's just going to be repeated in 21 for me. So all my expeditions, races, just like, oh, we'll do it the same date next year. <laughs> Everyone's the same, I think. Yeah, I've like, the, I had a um, Mount Kazbek in Georgia, which really, like, there's no rope work, really, um, uh, for August next year. And that's the only thing next year that's going to think, I think, be a true 2021 <laughs> trip I'm doing. Everything else is just 2020. Like the gigs, like, the talks I've got booked. <laughs> Everything's just on repeat. Yeah, no, there's there's lots of mountains I want to climb. I absolutely adore mountaineering. Um and luckily so does my other half. But yeah, I'm not I'm not massively focused on doing the, the seven summits. Um it's just cool mountains that I want to climb. That's perfect. That's such a that's such a nice view to mountaineering. <laughs> <laughs> so um before we get to the last you've had some wonderful trips coming up. Um I was wondering so we, I mean, we just talked about how 2020 has been delayed to 2021, but how do you get the creativity and, and the research to, to get into it? I mean, you talk about doing cool mountains. Um, for some people, you know, granted, it is more like Bali, like this beach on Bali, but, you know, they can find something on Instagram and go, I want to find where that is. But for you, uh, how do you get the creativity to do these things? Oh, gosh. Um, it'd probably be a combination of all the books that I have, huge amount of books on mountaineering travel um i like going to places i've never been i like going to environments that i don't know anything about um my favorite thing is to pick sports i know nothing about so this year i had a really big mountain biking race in kurzestan uh ticks two boxes never been to kurzestan not sure why i'd otherwise go um, which is maybe a bit unfair. And um, mountain biking, I'm a terrible, I was, maybe still am, a terrible mountain biker. <laughs> um, right, I'm doing that. And I think, how do you hear about these things? How do you want to go to an expedition here, there, anywhere? I think it's through your circle of friends. Like, you just need to do one of these things and you'll walk away with friends for life that are like, oh, have you heard about this one? Well, what about this? Oh, my friend's doing this. And I think, like, the world opens up. Um, and I now have 
a lot of crazy friends. <laughs> um, and it's great because, um, you know, they'll be like, oh, you don't want to climb that. What about, you know about this mountain? And you're like, no, like, yeah, it'd be amazing. Um, so, yeah, it's a combination of those things, I guess. And um, I, I definitely pick things that are I am nothing about. Um, I've had to um, change it now, but I was supposed to row uh, the Pacific next summer. Um, and the huge appeal to doing that is I know absolutely nothing about ocean rowing. Navigating at sea, not a clue. But, you know, exact same when I started looking at Antarctica and wanting to do it there. It doesn't matter if you know anything about it. It's more about are you committed to it and um, can you figure these things out? Um, I think with all these kind of major expeditions that we hear about people doing, people like me doing, um, I never want the takeaway to be like, oh, my God, that's so utterly mind-blowing. I could never do that because it's nonsense. Mm. I can break it all down. And then once I do that with someone, like I mentor a lot of people who want to do the same expedition in Antarctica. And then they go, oh, <laughs> that sounds okay. Like, And it is once you break it down. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at it as a whole, it seems like insurmountable, terrifying, crevasses. Oh, my God, I don't know anything about the call. How do you navigate the cycle? And mm. No, it's not. It's not a big deal. And I think some kind of storytellers, I think, sometimes are guilty of trying to make it sound like it is just the hardest thing you've ever heard of. And it's just not the case. People have different attitudes towards what's hard. But if you if you really break it down into these achievable bite sized you know, bits, anyone could do it. What I've done isn't that special at all. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, just breaking it down into into bite sized pieces and doing the unknown, I guess, then. <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible i really like that how you come across those trips i was just gonna think maybe dares dating a south pole on your own <laughs> so lastly last question um, in all of your time achieving and pushing yourself what is one moment that you would love to relive god loads like everything i've ever done like i'm really good at keeping like a little mental snapshot of just you know one moment that i could relive minute by minute but the the moment I would love to do again was um, so just to explain with Antarctica these are these are massive expeditions to put on like don't underplay that part it takes years to put them together the funding is like 100k with the mountaineering it was like near 200k it's a lot of money I'm doing it with my sponsors it's a big deal there's a lot of press with it blah 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 um, and training for it is about nine months worth. Um, so it's a, it's a big, you know, life undertaking. I'm doing the, your family get involved and your life is Antarctica day in, day out. And I definitely grew up on books um, written by my peers um, about going to Antarctica for the first time, what it's like when you land there. And I obviously had never been to Antarctica. And so, you know, the first time I went uh, for the first expedition, the first attempt, it was like, oh, my God, it's finally happening. I'm finally here like doing like all these work with sponsors, getting all the money together all the kit all the training were here and then this tiny tiny little plane it's like a six-seater it's just you in there your sled and the pilot and they land on the coastline which is like the official guinness start line from where you do your world record attempt and i had no idea what that moment was going to be like when they just go on get off the plane and then they leave and you are literally nowhere <laughs> there's nothing there there's not a little sign that says start there's just nothing um, and I didn't know in that moment um, if I'd burst out laughing or burst into tears. 
And um, it was a bit awkward because the pilot didn't leave for about an hour. He just kept chatting to me. So I'm standing by my sled with all my, you know, everything. And to me, I was like, I'm ready to go. Like, you know, um, and he's like, well, it's just, I don't get away from base very often. It's quite nice just to be out here. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, well, so just ran away from oh, Canada. Oh, nice. Okay. All these little chats. And he's like, well, I should probably go now. I was like, okay. And then, yeah, he just waved and he's like, I'll see you when I see you, you know, in 700 miles time. And um, off he went. And I just watched as he went. And I got the giggles so hard. I laughed and laughed and laughed. I was there for like a solid 30 minutes sitting on my sledge. And I think it was a combination of like, I cannot believe what I've just pulled off. I literally cannot believe what I've just pulled look, look where I am right now. Yeah. And it was just like an attitude of not giving up, mostly done with a really good internet connection and the Mac, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, physical training is different, but like financially putting it all together and things. And it was like, holy crap. And I, I couldn't stop laughing. I just couldn't stop laughing. And it was, it was, it was a lovely, lovely moment. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, Jenny, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. If we wanted to follow along with your updates and see what you're up to next, where's best to go to? Oh, definitely just on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the go-to for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, lazy way to keep everyone updated. Perfect. Well, listen, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, uh, and yeah, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. such a fascinating episode there with Jenny brilliant to hear her thoughts and her experience in life and expeditions be sure to check out Sidetracked Magazine 2 the sponsor of this episode go and subscribe to their free monthly newsletter go and check out their magazine as well it's incredible quality just bringing you such captivating adventure so go and check them out thank you so much for listening get in touch and send us your thoughts on btmtravelpod at gmail.com like and follow the podcast on social media with the links in the show notes and below. I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next one. Peace.